Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivan. And today I want to start with a question and ask you, why do we sponsor a Kiddush, a bracha? If you join us in our shul, Santon Central Shul, right across the Chautrain in the heart of the Santon CBD, where we're surrounded by hotels and a wonderful, wonderful community every Shabbos. In fact, the truth is every day at the Minyan, we try to have some lachayim, some refreshments, but particularly on Shabbos, every Friday night, we have a miniature bracha with refreshments and drinks. And then on Shabbos day, always we have a beautiful, magnificent sponsorship of a whole spread at Shul. Where do we get this idea that for every milestone we reach, whether it's a bar mitzvah or even a regular birthday, we have to throw a big party. Sometimes a gala banquet. People make a, a kiddush in the shul. Where does this idea of the kiddush, the bracha, come from? My friends, in this week's parsha, this Shabbos, we read two portions. We take out two Torahs in the shul. At our shul, we have a brand new, magnificent, Sephardically decorated Torah that we will be inaugurating this week at the shul. And we also take out one of the regular Torahs we have as well. From the first Torah, we're going to read the portion of Vayikra, which is in the weekly cycle of the Torah readings. And from the second portion, we're going to read Zachar. As we are getting close to the festival of Purim, we prepare by reading and remembering what Amalek tried to do to destroy, to eliminate, to annihilate our people after our exodus from Egypt and just as Amalek then and his descendants in the Purim story and so many others throughout our history, we as the Jewish people are resilient and with God's miraculous blessings, not only do we survive, but here we are, we thrive. And as every festival we say, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. But today I'm not talking about why we eat on Purim and why we celebrate our festivals of food. I'm talking about why we throw a bracha, a kiddush, why we actually have festive meals to celebrate our events in life. And in the Parsha, the first portion we read this week, the very first Parsha in the book of Vayikra, this is a book that discusses the karbanas, the sacrifices, which itself is a little bit of a complicated book in the Torah. In fact, there's a fascinating insight I want to share with you about that. If you look at the very first verses, the very first day of creation of the world, where God created the heaven and earth on the first day, Sunday, and then God created the light. God said, Yehi or there should be light. Vayehi or, and there was light. But if you will open your Chumash and you will count on the first day how many times the word light is mentioned, actually, you could count. There are five times the word or light is mentioned. In the very third verse of the Torah, we have it twice. God said there should be light and there was light. In the fourth verse, God saw that the light was good. And God distinguished between the light and the darkness to the day he called, to the light he called day, and to the darkness God called night. And it was one day, it was it was evening, it was morning, one day. So you have the word light five times. But the third time it says it was good. God saw the light that it was good. So our sages tell us, don't recall which commentary, but one of the commentaries I read says, each of the five times we see the word light mentioned, each one symbolically represents another one of the five books of the Torah. 
Only the third book, though, is mentioned, Kitov. God gives us an extra dosage of goodness in a book of the Torah that's more complicated, more difficult to understand. So this book of the Torah, the book of Ayikra, that deals with the karbanas, the sacrifices that the Jews used to bring in the Mishkan and the Tabernacle that we were reading about in the past few weeks in the Torah portions. We'll get back to that in a moment. And in the temple later on, that is mentioned, the Torah says about that, God sweat is kitov, it's very good. In life, when you face obstacles and challenges and difficulties, you have to realize God gives you the wherewithal, the ability, the potential to overcome those challenges that you face in life. And please God, with that strength and ability, can overcome any challenge that you face, see it as an opportunity. And so the very first offering we read about is the Ola. The Ola offering was brought by anyone who felt the desire to become closer to God. And this offering was entirely burnt upon the Mizbech, the altar in the temple. No one would partake, would consume, would eat any of its meat because it was reserved completely for God. The idea of a carbon, a sacrifice, bringing an offering to Hashem. Now, in addition to individuals who brought the Ola offering, the community would also bring the daily sacrifice called the carbon Tamid. So the carbon arla oila was brought twice every day, once in the morning and again in the afternoon to strengthen the bond between God and his people. The idea of a carbon comes from the etymology from the root word karov to come close. So you come closer to God by sacrificing from your livestock, from your personal possessions. And in the very same way that you want to cultivate a relationship with anyone else, the only way to come closer to someone requires the very same idea of karban. You're going to have to sacrifice something, your time, your finances, your, your heart, your vulnerability, your feelings. Today, when we have no temple and we cannot offer sacrifices, how do we go about deepening our connection to God? Our sages tell us, that prayers were established in the place of the offerings. When you wish to draw nearer to God, you need to simply pray. When we violate, when we transgress the will of God, what happens? We become distanced from Hashem, from the will of God. When we offer a sacrifice or when we do teshuva, when we pray to Hashem, we become one with God. That's why it's called atonement. Atonement is at one becoming closer, one with Hashem. Now, when a Jew praise when you say your prayers we have to reflect the ola offering just as an ola was entirely burnt upon the altar we also have to be completely absorbed in our prayer we have to concentrate and focus just as the owner of the sacrifice didn't partake of even the smallest amount so too we shouldn't think of ourselves of our own needs during prayer god as an atm machine almighty god i need money i need this i need that the other Instead, we should concentrate only on our desire to be closer to God, to strengthen our connection with Hashem. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew word for prayer, the English word prayer implies a precarious, I need things from God. But the Hebrew word for prayer, tefillah, is about connection. It's about me connecting with Hashem. So that's what we achieve when we pray. Now, the next offering we read about in our parsha is the carbon shlamim. There were different types of shlamim offerings. When God performed a miracle for someone, for example, if someone was, let's say, cured from a terminal illness, or if you won the lottery, or even if your, 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 your football team won the championship, and a person would bring a carbon toda, a thanksgiving offering. 
That was one type of shlamim. Another form of shlamim was the chagiga, the festival offering. And this offering was obviously sacrificed on the Jewish festivals. But unlike the ola, of which nobody ate anything, only small parts of the shlamims were burnt on the altar. The parts that people wouldn't usually eat anyways. The rest of the karban of that sacrifice was divided between the kahanim and the owner who brought this sacrifice. And they would share, he, the person who brought the sacrifice, would share the meat with his family, with his friends, with the, with the less, less privileged, the less advantaged than oneself, the poor, and it had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. That's where the shlamim gets its name from. It brings shalom, peace to so many people, everyone. You brought something to God, to the kahanim, the owner and his family, the kahanim would share with their families, you would share it with the less privileged, everyone gets to enjoy it. So today, instead of the carbon toda offerings, we prepare a su'udas haida'a, a thanksgiving feast. That's when we express our thanks to God for all the kindness that God bestows upon us, that God shows us. And this is essentially the source for our feasting in honor of any special milestone in life. Had we lived in the times of the temple, we would have offered the sacrifices to God as thanksgiving for allowing us to reach these milestones. Today, we invite our friends to a bracha, to a kiddush and shul. We say l'chaim together. We give thanks to God for God's infinite mercy, kindness, compassion, and care for us. Whether it's a baby naming or a bar mitzvah, whether it's a, a golden anniversary, every occasion is celebrated by thanking God together with friends and family. And it's clear to see that just like the actual shlamim, a kiddush brings peace to the community. At a kiddush, even those that are, you know, sometimes a little grumpy during the services, everybody comes alive with joy. You know, we even have a term, some people are JFK. They come to show just for the Kiddush. Well, the same thing applies to the large Jewish festivals. You know, whereas we would have eaten the meat of Shlamims in the good old days, today we still have the mitzvah of eating meat and we make festive meals rejoicing with God on every festival. In fact, here at Chabad, we are organizing now, we're planning not only for our amazing Purim festivities next week, but you know, it's only five weeks away to Pesach. And if you are really interested in an exciting and outstanding, unbelievable experience for Pesach, then you want to join us at the Pesach retreat, where you could experience Yom Tiv like you've never done before in the very best, most magnificent way. And of course, this is the idea of Yom Tov as an opportunity to celebrate and to thank God for all the blessings. Well, the next offering we read about is called the Karban Chatas, the sin offering. Those who unintentionally committed a sin, they brought this offering, the Karban Chatas, as an atonement. And this offering is somewhere between the Ola and the Shlamim. Half the offering was burned upon the altar like the Ola, but not the whole thing like the Ola. Because the owner is still quite far from God. The second half was divided among the Kohanim. And as part of the atonement, the owner did not get any of the, the meat. Because this was not an occasion to be celebrated. This isn't a carbon tod of Thanksgiving. This isn't a carbon chagig. It's not a festival. So it wasn't shared with family and friends. Today, when we are not in our land, how do we atone for an accidental sin? The prophet says, 
Redeem your sin through charity. That means that as soon as you realize that we've done something wrong, that we've in some way betrayed God, we should immediately repent. We should do teshuva by giving tzedakah. For a sin is a sign of selfishness. I wanted instant gratification. You know, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted. And therefore, only by giving part of myself to another person can I truly achieve that atonement of becoming one with God again that I distanced before. It's the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, Today, those who feel awe of the Word of God give a lot of charity. For what would a man not give for the sake of the atonement of his soul? And so, they say that in yeshiva, when the boys were taught this lesson, the rabbi added, what if someone does not have enough money to redeem himself from a sin? And then he paused for a moment and he said, if you can't afford it, then don't sin. Jokes aside, that is the way one atones for sins today. For the carbon chattas, it is by being charitable, by being kind and generous to others, we thereby make up that deficiency where perhaps we had a flaw in ourselves that needs to be rectified and we fix it up by being generous and kind to others, we thereby atone for our own wrongdoing. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kivan. And while we were talking about the Torah portion and the sacrifices, I want to share with you, we know how difficult the past week has been for all of us, but we cannot begin to imagine what the people of Ukraine have actually been going through. Let me tell you what I know firsthand about experiences from some of the shluchim there. I have family who live in Kharkov. My first cousin is a Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Levi Reitzes, is a shliach, a Chabad representative for nearly 30 years in the city of Kharkov in Ukraine. And he and his family had to flee. It was a harrowing experience of days and days of fleeing from the war. They did not want to abandon their community, but unfortunately, as part, as this war was advancing and the situation was getting worse, they had to find a way to evacuate for their sake and for the sake of their community. And they tried to take as many people with them to evacuate as well. And in another city, in Odessa, I have a very close friend who I speak with on a daily basis. He's from Odessa. He's been updating me what's going on there. Last week, in the midst of the whole fury of war, they managed to evacuate all the children from the orphanage in a very long caravan of buses. There's video footage. You could see what goes on and how the rabbi, who bids farewell to his beloved community, not wanting to abandon them, but sending them off so they could reach safety. Many of them have made it to Israel. Others are in Moldova and other countries. They left Odessa on Wednesday. They crossed the border from Ukraine into Moldova then to Romania, then to Hungary, and from there, most of them settled in Germany, where many of them are getting refuge, and a whole lot of them made it to Israel. This beautiful footage of the Prime Minister welcoming some of these kids. They left Odessa, and it took them days of traveling. Just think about how many hours the children spent on the road. There's an article in H.com today of the Chabad Shluchim in Kiev, who've been there for over 20-something years, and their experience of escaping with members of their community, not that they wanted to leave their communities, but as the bombs are falling, they have a responsibility to actually leave at this stage. They planned on staying. None of them said they were going to leave at first when the governments were urging them to do so. 
thank God they're now safe and sound after this whole harrowing experience. They're out of danger. Like I said, some in Germany, some in Moldova, some in Romania, and some were lucky to get to Israel. But you just think that's only the tip of the iceberg of the miracles that they experienced along the way. You could read the articles on Chabad.org and on H.com and other places of the experiences these families and their communities have experienced during this time, what it took to get out. The project of the evacuation, the truth is, really began a while ago when they saw that the situation was getting worse and they realized they had to be ready to move the children to another country, particularly these children, these orphans. Unfortunately, in Ukraine, the family unit is very different than what we're used to in proper functioning families. And over there, there are many, many orphans in the orphanages. And so the rabbi there contacted the Ukrainian Ministry of the Interior to get passports, but they were told that the office was very busy and they, they just can't get get done, you know, we come back in August. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried here in South Africa going into some of these offices or to VFS and discovering how long it takes to get any documents in place. Sometimes these are processes that take a very long time. Now at first, they seem to have no choice and that's why they remained in Odessa. But as the situation continued to deteriorate, they realized they needed to head immediately for the border, despite many of these kids not having proper documentation, only birth certificates. So they began making phone calls, pulling connections. Even on the road, one of the rabbis was describing the entire time, even on Shabbos, the rabbi's on his phone just to try to help save as many people as possible. As we know, the Gemara tells us saving one life is saving an entire world. As we see Adam, the very first human being was created single because one life is saving a whole world. And miraculously, they managed to move not only through one border, but through all four borders. Even Israel accepted people without the proper documentation because of understanding the situation of what was happening. And the rabbi describes how amazing that is because you can't get anywhere without passports. But obviously this is a unique circumstance and situation that had to be dealt with. Many people are seeing this war as like David versus Goliath. Personally, I had nothing against Putin until two weeks ago, seeing how he's gone mad, seeing what he's doing from there. Now, of course, seeing my name is Kievman, you can understand we have ancestry coming from Kiev. And still today, family who live there in the region, and for all the citizens, especially particularly our own Jewish community there, and it's one of the largest Jewish communities in the world, you can understand why there is reason to worry. But just using this example, as some of others have said, many people define you know, that President Zelensky, the Jew of Ukraine as the King David, and Putin, who's gone mad, as the, as the Goliath, you know, just looking and, and seeing how Zelensky, the, prim, the president of Ukraine, is handling this, it's quite impressive. And he has certainly become a household name these days, and I think that he has the sympathy of the world. But I want to just explore what was the secret of how David, in fact, King David, defeated Goliath in his time. One of the very disturbing pieces of news over the past week was Putin's order to his military to step up nuclear readiness to the highest level. In fact, this is something that I saw in the news today that there's a fear that it might in fact be something that Putin is considering nuclear warfare. It's quite scary. I want to share with you something. More than 70 years ago, during the Rebbe's very first 
Purim Fabrengen in 1950, he spoke about the atomic bomb, which was a, a brand new invention back then. And the Rebbe pointed out that the discovery is that by splitting the atom into tiny particles, an amazing amount of energy could be produced, an amount which previously was thought to have needed a much larger physical basis. In other words, the Rebbe said, it's not a question of quantity. By utilizing the potential in even the smallest quantity, and by splitting that quantity into even smaller particles, amazing things can be accomplished. By nullifying the entity, it's called bitalayesh in Hasidic parlance. Minute matter can accomplish great, great things. And so the Rebbe learned a very interesting lesson. Just as a very small amount can produce enormous nuclear energy, which could change the whole fate of the entire world, so too, said the Rebbe, one person can influence the entire world. Like we said a moment ago, saving one life is saving the entire world. But the condition is that you have to nullify yourself. When a medical professional, when a doctor, when a paramedic is going there to save a life, like we said before, it requires sacrifice. I could tell you, I'm a volunteer paramedic without telling myself. When you have to leave your family in the middle of the night, you leave in the middle of a meal. When you're going to just, you have to take some sacrifice from yourself and in fact, it doesn't pay for a doctor to go into the medical profession thinking they're gonna make big bucks. Because if you're going in to make the big bucks, I don't think that will make a good doctor or medic. Of course, one who goes in wholeheartedly committed to care for the well-being of others, that person, no doubt, will make a good doctor, will make good money. So it certainly requires a self-nullification. When a person reaches a state of mind, when you don't think about yourself, you dedicate your life to the purpose at hand, to saving others, then you can discover in yourself forces that can change the entire world. Because when you save one life, you're saving all world. As soon as you recognize that this matter is beyond your ability, but nevertheless, you're willing to give your life for it, then God comes to your aid. God helps that you could achieve that goal. And in that sense, a doctor is given God's blessing and tools to bring healing to the world. And this is what happened when David faced Goliath. He knew that he was a little guy, but he nevertheless forced himself. He faced Goliath in order to save the Jewish people. As David HaMelech said to Goliath, you come to me with the sword and spear, and I come to you in the name of Hashem, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. When a person knows that he has no chance of winning with his own might and abilities and nevertheless goes into battle because he trusts in God, he becomes a worthy vessel for God to give him that supernatural power and a miracle to be done through him. That's exactly what medical professionals do. That's what care workers are about. That's what they do. And so I think if you think about it in that way exactly, in fact, in Tehillim, King David, it's a very short chapter of Tehillim, Psalm 131, in which King David says exactly this point. And he says, you know, Shir Amalas the David, it's a song of praise by David to Hashem. And what does he say? My heart was not proud and my eyes were not haughty, nor did I pursue matters too great and too wondrous for me. And the Gemara explains that King David was saying, what does it mean my heart was not proud? When Shmuel anointed him to be the king over Israel, he said, my eyes were not haughty. When I killed Goliath, 
nor did I pursue matters too great when I brought the back the Ark of the Covenant, and nor did I pursue matters too wondrous for me when I was reinstalled to my kingship. It was David's humility that made him worthy of all these miracles and wonders. And so my friends, in the Torah portion that we read last week, we read in the Torah about how the people of Israel finished fashioning the tabernacle and brought it to Moshe Rabbeinu, which is why our Parsha this week, Vayikra, continues and tells us about the service that the Jews did in the temple. Now, why did they bring it to Moshe? Says Rashi, they were not able to erect it due to the weight of the planks. No man had the power to erect it himself. The tabernacle was just way too heavy. Think about it. It was built of 48 planks. Each one is 10 cubits high. 10 cubits is about 5 meters in height. And a cubit and a half wide. Okay, that's, again, uh, a cubit and a half wide, let's say about a meter wide. And a cubit thick, half a meter thick. In addition, each was plated with gold, which we know gold is a very heavy material. In other words, each plank weighed more than a ton. And Rashi continues to say that Moshe erected it. How exactly did Moshe succeed where all the expert builders and the architects and engineers and everyone else involved failed? So Rashi tells us, Moshe said to God, how could it be erected by a human being? God told him, act as if you are erecting it. And guess what? Miraculously, it arose by itself. Why did this miracle happen to Moshe Rabbeinu and to none of the others? Why was he able to do something that the others were not able to? Because as the Torah says, that Va'ish Moshe Anav Mikol Adam, that Moshe Rabbeinu was the humblest human on the face of earth. So Moshe personified the ultimate humility, that bitzel, that self-abnegation. It was never about himself. And when a person reaches such a level, he has nuclear energy. He can move even the heaviest objects. We find the same idea as we're getting close to Purim next week in the book of Esther. When Queen Esther went to King Ahasuerus to beg for her people, she went without being summoned. Remember the story in the Megillah when Mordechai sends a message to Esther that she should go before her husband, the king, and plead the case of her people. Esther at first was hesitant. She had reservations. Why didn't she want to go? Because, as the Megillah says, you don't, and no person goes before the king without the king extending his golden scepter and, and would survive and live. And she, she said, I wasn't even called already for 30 days. So she went without being summoned as Mordechai convinced her, knowing full well that this could actually mean her death. No one, no one does this. And nevertheless, as Mordechai convinced her, she chose to go. And as she said, And if I lose out, if I perish, so will I perish. And the Megillah says that on the third day, as she prepared for this meeting, Esther put on royalty. On the most literal level, it means that she wore the royal clothes to appear in her full beauty before the king. But our sages offer a deeper interpretation. This teaches us that she put on the Holy Spirit, the Gemara says. Royalty means that she internalized that the power of salvation does not lie with her. It's not just because she happens to be married to the king. Mordechai says, you think you're so beautiful? You think you're so, you're so uh, uh, charming that the king married you? 
It's not about you. Why do you think you're in this position? You are there, obviously, to fulfill a mission, to help save your people. It comes, salvation comes from God alone. And this is what made the redemption possible. When she put herself aside, yes, she was put, taking a risk. She was putting herself at danger. Nobody goes before the king without the king extending his golden scepter. And so, my friends, of course, this brings a very powerful message to us, which we'll conclude with in just a moment. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Arik Even. And today we've been talking about some lessons from the Parsha this week about the sacrifices that it takes to make to come closer to God. And as we said, to come closer to Hashem, the word Karban, which literally means sacrifice, but etymologically comes to the word karav, to come close to God. Just as you want to cultivate any relationship, the only way to come close to another is by self-sacrifice. And therefore, our Torah portion this week starts off with that very phrase and says that God called out to Moshe, and Moshe is teaching the Jewish people about the laws of sacrifice, and it starts off with this very instruction. God says to the Jewish, tells Moshe to tell the Jewish people, Adam If a person will sacrifice from among you, a sacrifice to God. Now hold on, are you sacrificing yourself to God? But as our sages, and particularly the Alter Rebbe, explains this concept, the idea that it takes sacrifice from yourself, from your own needs and desires, from your own persona, from your own persona. And therefore, the Torah continues and tells us all the laws about offerings, about sacrifices being brought to God, and we discuss the various sacrifices, the carbon ola, which is representative in prayer, because the carbon ola is completely burnt as an offering to God when you want to connect to Hashem. Take oneself out of the picture. Then we discuss the various carbon shlamims, whether it was a carbon toda, whether it was a carbon chagiga, it was about giving thanksgiving, it was about the festival, it was about then you got to enjoy and you shared that joy with others. And then of course there was a carbon chatas, a sacrifice for atonement for sins, which required a person giving of themselves, giving charitable to others. Well, when it comes to war, and we've been discussing this concept about the war. What made King David successful and victorious over Goliath? As we quoted from Tehillim, it was this abnegation of self, the concept of bittel, that idea of humility, of not being haughty and too proud of oneself. That's what's made him victorious in his victories one after another. And the same thing we described in the book of Esther and the Megillah that we're going to read this week, the story of Purim where Esther, the queen, who was in this privileged position as queen of Persia, how she was able to convince Ahasuerus to realize not to annihilate, not to allow the extinction, the final solution, as was proposed by the Hitler of that time, by the wicked Haman, for the annihilation of the Jewish people. The irony that King Ahasuerus, in fact, he killed his first wife Vashti by the instruction of his, of his wicked advisor Haman. And then he killed his wicked Haman by the advisor of his wife, Esther. So that's the persona of Ahasuerus, but the idea we're discussing here is it takes that personal bittle that only when Esther was willing to see that her position of royalty was purely because this, why was she chosen? It was in her hands to help save the people. And that's why the Megillah describes that she 
put on her royal garments, her royal clothes, to appear in her full beauty before the king. As the Gemara explains a little deeper, it teaches us that she put on, what does it mean royalty? Her, her royal Holy Spirit. Royalty means that she internalized that the power of salvation comes from Hashem. And so this bittel of hers, allowing that space, that belief, and in preparation through prayer and fasting, was she able to allow the redemption to come about. My dear friends, times of war make us realize that we can't always control the world's situation or even our own personal situations. But this very recognition, realizing that everything is in God's hands, that makes us vessels for the revelation of the divine powers within ourselves. When Esther appeared before the king and she had, she had to sort of say, def, de, de, defeat, de, um, refute the arguments of Haman. Haman described the Jewish people as Yeshna Amechad, Mefuzer, Mefar, Ben Amim. There's this one nation, this one people who are spread and scattered amongst your nations. And there's different ways of understanding that on a literal level, he's talking about the Jewish people that we live everywhere, that perhaps we're assimilated everywhere. But they are different, he said. And he describes us in so many peculiar ways. Jews are different. They can't eat with us. They have to keep kosher. They can't work like this. They have to keep their Shabbos and their festivals. They're a different type of people. They're alien to this country. They're a fifth column, is the way Haman wanted to describe us. Yet we see that Esther does not refute all of those allegations and accusations against the Jewish people when she comes before her husband, Achashverosh. Instead, she says, who are these people you want to kill? It's my people. I am a Jewess. And the Rebbe beautifully explains this concept and idea that when a Jew behaves like a Jew, what is a Jew showing what a Jew behaves like? Well, the king knows his wife Esther intimately. He knows her persona, her personality, her character traits. That's a Jewess. Of course, I don't want to annihilate such a people. As one rabbi once put it, he said, if the Jews don't make Kiddush, you know, we start our Shabbos with Kiddush, but Kiddush is also a reference to Kiddush Hashem, Hashem sanctifying God's name in this world by living a meaningful, moral, upright, positive way, the way a Jewish person ethically is meant to live. Then unfortunately, the nations of the world make Havdalah. Havdalah is the ceremony which we do at the end of Shabbos to distinguish between Shabbos and the weekday. Then they make Havdalah with us. They finish us off. Of course, we don't want to do that. And that's why it is our responsibility as Jews to be a shining light, a light unto the nations, to bring light to the world. And that's why we say, the verse says, even the little, even the little one will become a thousand and the young one to a powerful nation. This is the message of that nuclear power. When we connect to that place in ourselves, realizing who we are, when we humble ourselves and behave as truly Jews should, then we again, we have that nuclear power within ourselves to achieve, to accomplish, to do that which needs to be done to fight off the darkness in this world. As I say, even a little bit of light, ma'at or doiche har can dispel a lot of the darkness. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of darkness in the world lately, but please God, each of us, in our appropriate ways, living Jewishly as we ought to, we can extinguish the darkness of the world by bringing light. Let's bring the light of Yiddishkeit and thereby 
the darkness will dissipate. We each have the nuclear power within each of ourselves. Let us overcome the darkness of the world. Each of us can do this. Let us do so. Wishing you all a pleasant, powerful, and meaningful Shabbos, Bayikra, Zachar, remember. And just a good way to remember the names of the Parshas. Two weeks ago we read Shkalim, where we paid the coins as they did in the times of the temple towards its maintenance and upkeep. And this week we read Zachar. Zachar is to remember, remember what Amalek tried to do to us. The following week we're going to read Para, which was to do with the purification before Pesach, as in the Para Aduma, the red heifer. And the final portion we read in three weeks' time, or two weeks' time, losing track of time, Pesach is around the corner, is HaChodesh. We read about, and in fact, I think this year, Rosh Chodesh Nisan is on Shabbos. So we're going to have HaChodesh then, which is the Jewish accountability for time, as the Torah teaches. And so, ladies and gents, as you're going to read that week, it's going to be, in fact, HaChodesh and Tazriya and Rosh Chodesh. So another unique opportunity to take out all three Torahs from the Ark that Shabbos. Again, very unique, but we'll cross the bridge when we get there. The mnemonic I wanted to give you to remember that is, it pays to remember the cow jumped over the moon. It pays, Shkalim, to remember Zachar, the cow, Para, and HaChodesh, referring to the Jewish calendar, HaChodesh, based on the moon, as is our lunar calendar. And so, don't become too much of a lunatic. But remember, it pays to remember the cow jumped over the moon. And with that, I leave you, my friends, to bring more light, more nuclear, positive nuclear energy to the entire world. Wishing you all a most meaningful, splendid, and beautiful Shabbos.